Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72 with Pastor John King. So, everyone, please uh, join me if you will. Today we're going to be back in the book of Mark. Thank you, Bob, for uh, leading the church last week. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to get out of town and kind of relax. And uh, You know, uh, we thought we wouldn't come back, but here we are. Uh, no, just kidding. So... Uh, but in any event, today we're going to go into Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. Verses 53 to 72. Now, let me actually put a plug in. If you're ever up in the D.C. area and you like the Calvary Chapel style of worship and ministry, highly recommend to you Calvary Chapel of Manassas. Pastor David Spear, Assistant Pastor Reggie. Uh, if you've never been there, if you're ever in that area, it's a great place to visit and uh, and I will ask that you pray that uh, maybe Chris and Bethany would make that their home church as well while they're up there for the next four years. Anyway, a little side note. I thought you said, well, I thought the announcements were over, Pastor John. Yes, they should have been. But So uh, we left off our study a couple weeks ago with Mark uh, with a look at Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this was, it was certainly a tragic betrayal of an innocent man. But we were left with a sense of comfort in knowing that Jesus had settled his heart to submit to the will of the Father. And his willingness to submit to this large crowd of soldiers and officials that had come with swords and clubs was presented through his own words, ironic words. In chapter 14, verses 48 and 49, you can look back in your, in your Bible and you'll see that Jesus answered when they came, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Today we will see Jesus in the first stages of a three-part hearing before the Jewish high council known as the Sanhedrin. And we'll see the striking example of corruption and hatreds towards the Lord as they call for his execution based on groundless charges of blasphemy. We will also witness the prophetic act of betrayal by Peter in the palace garden of the high priest. Join me in our text for today, chapter 14 of Mark, verse 53. Reads, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it then that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to, do, to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to strike or say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Verse 66. Now as Peter was below the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Heavenly Father, here we are once again through your word. And Lord, we have been brought to a place of gross injustice. But at the same time, we see this gross injustice and we see this betrayal, Lord. We see your hand of sovereignty being carried out. And Lord, help us to recognize that all the terrible things that our Lord and Savior had gone through was for our benefit and for our gain. He took the blows. He took the, the spitting and he took all those things upon him so that we might have eternal life. And so, Lord, let us enter into this story, into this text with a fresh reminder and a humble heart. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Bring us to your throne of grace. Bring us to a deeper place of understanding. We pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name. And all God people, God's people said, Amen. Well, we see, of course, we, the, the, you know, uh, the narrative of Mark moves very rapidly. It's got a lot of twists and turns, a lot of action. And here we see that they led Jesus away to the high priest. Now, who was the high priest at the time? We've learned earlier his name was Caiaphas, and he was the son of the former high priest, Annas. But before we go any further, let's be reminded of how the Gospels harmonize themselves. Because this was actually phase two of a three-part trial. It's actually a six-part trial. Three before the Jews, and there'll be three more parts before the Romans. We'll get to that next week. And so we're in part two. Mark's in part two. But if we read John's account, we notice that what he does in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, notice that the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of, Jesus, of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. But notice this, and they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Remember, the Romans had taken over the role of how long a high priest could have office. Prior to the Romans taking control of Jerusalem and, and, and Israel, the high priest would serve you know, basically for life. 
But then he limited, now he limited the, 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 not he, but the Romans to, in order to have a further, a deeper control, their government control, if you will, over the Jews, they limited the high priest's tenure or his service to one year at a time. And it had to be approved by Caesar himself. And so what we see here is since Annas was the previous high priest, he still holds a lot of sway with the Sanhedrin. He holds a lot of sway with those in power, those men of robes, if you will, the ones that kind of ruled the religious world in that day. And so he was brought before Annas first. And if you continue to read John, John 18, verses 19 and 24, you see some dialogue taking place. You see some things happening. It says that the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. This is Annas. And Jesus answered to him, and I, he says, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. In other words, he's, he's proving even from the very beginning of this trial that he's an innocent man. He says, why do you ask me all these things? Uh, all those who have heard me, what I said to them, indeed they know what I said. You know, you, don't have to, you wouldn't have to bring me to trial. And notice in verse 22 of this particular text, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by uh, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered and he said, if I have spoken evil, then bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And in verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So that's really where we're at when you take it all together. So now Jesus, here he's coming, and then we go back to our text for today, and we say, and with him were assembled the chief priests. This is all at, at the high priest's house, the high priest's palace. All the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. This entire group with all of their servants, they were so certain of their uh, commitment to seeing Jesus die, that they would get up very early. This is still, you know, early in the morning and probably daybreak. And they would come together. Uh, they'd already come together several times to plot his death, but they were so certain that this was going to be the one. And they were going to do it whether he was guilty or not. That's the whole thing we got to remember here. It was a gross injustice. And yes, the bigger thing we must remember that it was God's will. Again, as I said earlier, both the Jewish trial and the Roman trial were each in three stages. The Jewish trial was opened by Annas, the former high priest, then moved to the full council to hear witnesses, which we're going to see today, and then to an early morning session for the final vote of condemnation, which we'll see next week, in verse 15, or chapter 15. And then later on, we'll see Jesus being sent to Pilate. Then we'll see him sent to Herod. Then we'll see the cry of the mob. He'll be back before Pilate. And then he will be delivered to be crucified. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. But here we are tonight, and Jesus has been taken to the high priest's house, uh, uh, Caiaphas. And then notice in verse 54 that Peter followed him at a distance. You know, his recent courage, Peter, remember how boisterous he was, had shrunk quite a bit. But he was still willing to put his life in danger. And why, why was it put in danger? Well, he, Peter, was right there in the courtyard of the high priest. So you had this, this hearing going on in the, in, the, in the palace, and then you had the servants sitting out warming themselves by the fire. And here's one of Jesus' men. 
I mean, if they'd have known, if he'd have been called out, Peter, he would have been drug in and probably stood trial with Jesus. Now, Peter was allowed access because of what? We, a lot of things we forget. You know, remember the harming of the gospel. Everybody, we focus on Peter being by himself, and Mark does. But he also had the Apostle John with him. And the Apostle John, it says in John 18, 15, it says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Well, that another disciple we know from John's writings, that's speaking of himself. And it says, now that disciple was known to the high priest. So the apostle John had connections with the high priest. And he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. This is the apostle John. So we, we don't, you know, this, he's kind of silent in the background. But it was actually Peter and John who were near the Lord's trial. But back to our text, we says, and Peter, he sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. Why did he have to do that? Well, because it was, you know, three or four in the morning in springtime in, in April, and it'd, it'd be like here. It'd be in the low 50s. It'd be, you'd be kind of chilly. You'd need a jacket if you had one. And he sat with the servants. Now, Peter wasn't actually putting himself in too much danger. It was dangerous. But they, could actually, they couldn't actually witness Jesus' trial, but they were close enough to hear of the proceedings. And so the proceeding goes like this. Look in verse 55, where you have this corrupt testimony. You have a corrupt testimony. It says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Testimony, the, word, the Greek word for testimony is martyria, which means somebody that bears witness. And it says they found none. In fact, they found no credible witnesses. If Jesus had a defense counsel, and if this was a just court, which it wasn't, the whole thing would have been thrown out right then and there. Many consider, one writer puts it this way, he says, many consider these proceedings to be without equal in the history of the world. The chief priests were descendants of Moses, Aaron, and Levi. The council members were from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And yet these children and descendants of the great patriarchs were gathered together to betray and condemn their promised Messiah. Verse 56, and then it says, it continues on. It says, for many bore false witness against him. Witness is martyr, martyria. False witness is that pseudo martyrio, if you will. But their testimonies, here's they only have a problem. Their testimonies didn't agree. So blatantly false were the accusations that they could not add up. In fact, they were contradictory. And they should never fly. They should have been disqualified. They should have been thrown out of court. And they knew the law because in Deuteronomy 17, 6, the Bible, the Old Testament that they live by, the, the, the law has a provision. It says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So if they were upholding their law, a person could never be put to death by the single testimony, the solitary testimony of one witness. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says one witness is not enough to convict 
anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's just, you know, a couple examples of just how corrupt this was. But then in verse 57, you know, this thing is falling apart, okay, by all rights, by all measures. And Jesus is standing there silently. And then it says, then some rose up. You know, they took a stand in order to try and strengthen the case. And they bore false witness against him, saying, now they had a specific charge. They had a specific charge. And they say in verse 58, we heard him say, wait a minute, this is it, right? We, now we have ear witness testimony. We hear him say, you know, he's a revolutionary. I will destroy this temple with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. A totally false accusation. How do we know? Jesus' words were twisted. We see in John's gospel, again, his actual words and their meaning. Jesus, in that context, when we, when we see John's, uh, John verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through 21, there it is. Is it? Yes. Um, Jesus, he is, he's responding to the leaders when he gave this answer that you see there after his first cleansing of the temple. You remember when he, he went into the temple twice and he tore it up and he overturned the tables and he, you know, he, made, a, he made his own personal whip and he actually whipped these, these uh, money changers. And they were asking him for a sign of heaven for what he did. You know, like, what authority do you have to do this? And can you maybe just give us a sign from heaven? And here's Jesus' response. He said in verse 216, uh, not up on your screen, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then when they answered him, when they asked him the question, going back, sorry, Lori, going back to the one you just had. When they asked him the question, who gave you the right to do this? Jesus answered and said, these are his actual words now, okay? Nothing like what they accused him of saying. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But John explains that Jesus was speaking not of the physical temple, but of his body. The fact that he would be crucified, we know the story. He would die and be buried and raised three days later. But they, didn't, they totally missed all that. So why am I taking so much time to explain this? It's just to highlight the fact that even their accusations that they thought they had, that they could maybe try to agree with one another on, because they knew the letter of the law, were false. They were terrible. Verse 59, Mark says, But not even... Did their testimony agree? You know, they'd taken it to this point. Despite their so-called eyewitness testimony, Jesus had a perfectly clean record. John 8, 46, he says, Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why then do you not believe me? He had a clean record. And their testimony didn't agree. They couldn't agree. Why did Mark emphasize this fact? Why, am, why are we emphasizing this fact now? Because this was the very same council that was designed to protect the innocent. They were designed to not allow false witnesses to wrongly condemn someone. And here you see a travesty of justice. They had instructions from God in Deuteronomy 19, 16-17 that said, 
If a false witness, Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 and 17, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. So the Lord had intended that this high council of priests would protect the innocent. And what a shame when those who are supposed to uphold justice uphold the law, are corrupted. Some of you may know a man named Michael Francis. He's an ex-mobster who grew up in a world of corruption. In fact, he grew up at a time when it was well known within the organized crime families in America that saw John F. Kennedy being helped into office in the election of 1960. He was, grew up in a world of corruption that it was well known among them that that very same organized crime group associates, some of them, most likely were the ones to take President Kennedy out of office. He was recently asked to compare the level of corruption, these dirty politics. You think about dirty politics in the history of our country, and many of us were alive when that happened or knew very well about it. There aren't many people that don't know that we had a president who was assassinated, more than one, but in our time. And he was asked to compare the level of corruption of dirty politics. And he says, I have never in my lifetime seen the level of corruption that is going on today in the political arena. He explained that prior to him becoming a Christian, his life was wrapped up around criminal court proceedings federal and state racketeering charges, appellate courts, and grand juries, and all the like. I mean, the mafia, excuse me, the organized crime is always in court and always being hunted down, if you will. So he knows the law from the criminal side of it. And he went on to say, I have never seen the law violated by people in power that I'm seeing now. And this is a comparison to the way it was, to the way it is presently. And this is one of the reasons, youth, why we pray over you <laughs> and why we pray for this nation. He's, re he's referring to the very foundation of our government institutions, especially lawyers, politicians, and judges, and high-level administrators of our government agencies and departments. And so, just as it was in the days of Jesus with this, this, this you know, uh, crazy you know, situation with our Lord being falsely accused and brought to trial. We have a very similar thing going on in our day. It's been said that the, uh, the inmates are loose and running the asylum. And it's a sad thing. Now, as we continue uh, in our, our text today, we notice that Jesus will be condemned, but he won't be truly convicted. Because as we say, this is a false trial. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. So now Caiaphas is, is going to move this trial on to its next phase. And he himself, the chief judge on this uh, Supreme Court, if you will, um, he starts to cross-examine or interrogate Jesus. And, and remember, Jesus is standing there. He has not said a word. 
And he asks him, he says, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? You can tell he's frustrated. You, can, you know that this trial is unraveling very quickly. In other words, what is your response to these charges? But the very first part of uh, verse 61, it says, But Jesus, he, Jesus, kept silent and answered nothing. Your King James Version said he, he held his peace. He was silent. Why was Jesus silent at this point? Why did he say nothing in defending himself against these false charges? Well, we know that one reason for sure was to fulfill Scripture. He said it would have to happen. Scripture must be fulfilled. Even though you're all a bunch of liars, Scripture will be fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 7. He was opposed, or excuse me, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Another reason why he kept silent was because he needed to be convicted. He talked his way out of a lot of things prior to this. And he, it wasn't his time yet, but he knew his time was now. He needed to be convicted, even though he could have talked his way out of it. Another uh, thing, reason why the Lord kept silent is, is uh, perhaps to teach us, to teach us that apart from Jesus, apart from the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, apart from our life in Him and through Him, our eternal life, you and I have absolutely no defense whatsoever. You and I could never stand before God on our own merit. Now you have the example of Jesus. Notice his example while he was under attack. And this is something for you and I to keep in mind because you're going to run into it. You may have already run into it this week. <laughs> I know I did. I ran into it big time with somebody who um, didn't share my views and a close person, somebody I love dearly. And, and you know, so we butted heads. There was no violence, but it was, it was not good. So Jesus' example under attack was very forceful to us. There was an example of his patience. He had to stand there patiently while the false charge after false charge was leveled against him. He had to endure it all and much more to come. He had to control himself, his emotions, and his tongue and not retaliate. How difficult it is for you and I to remain silent and to control our tongue, especially when the accusations are 100% false. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? See, the high priest now has changed his tactic. Instead of his sort of frustrated, you know, aren't you going to even answer? He starts to lay a situation upon Jesus, and he actually puts our Lord under oath. How do we know that? Matthew 26, 63. Again, it says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was going to have to answer this. The Christ is the, another word for the anointed Messiah, the promised one. The Son of the Blessed in our text, or the Son of God, is exactly what that means. It's used to describe the Blessed is the Father. And so what he's saying is, 
Uh, since he needed a blasphemy charge to c commit Jesus to, to have him executed, he had to have the charge known as blasphemy. So he asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Literally, are you the Messiah and are you the Son of God? By Jesus, and by you, by Jesus claiming God his, as the Father, he was claiming to be equal with God. And you can see that in John 5.18. So Jesus, here Jesus Christ has claimed himself to be equal with God. Well, what does that mean in the eyes of these religious Jews? Well, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. And not only does he say, I am, I exist, I am present, his answer in verse 62, which is one of three times where Jesus expressly accepts the title of the Son of God, the Messiah. He says, not only I am what you say, he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Not only am I the Son of God, not only am I the Messiah, but you will see a future event of Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. And an even more future event as the Son of Man when he comes back and where the entire world can see him. And he is sitting at the right hand of the power. What is the power? Well, again, the power is the ultimate and divine. It describes God the Father. And that's where he sits. And he finishes and he says, and coming in the clouds of heaven, referring to his arrival. He's going to arrive. And we know that as that, as the second advent or the second coming. What this does, in his answer, sets off a chain reaction in this hearing. Verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes. He tore his clothes to rend or to break. The term is often used to describe a Hebrew custom which indicated deep sorrow. Upon the death of a relative or an important personage or when there was great calamity, it was customary for the Hebrews to tear their garments. We saw in Genesis that Reuben rent his clothes when he found that Joseph had, taken, had been taken from the pit. Genesis 37:29. Rending of clothes was also an expression of indignation. You've seen all, you've probably all seen the films, you know, Jesus' last day is Passion Week, and you got those guys dressed up in their fancy clothes, and, you know, they're, after this, this chain reaction starts to take place, he declares himself to be God, and they're just tearing their clothes and, and basically freaking out. <laughs> But it's, it's a drama. It's a, he's, bring, he's building up the drama of this high priest. And he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? We, we don't even need to continue. Let's move forward. Why did he want to move forward? Well, because his trial was a sham. His case wasn't worth it. And he says, you have heard, verse 64, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? You know, he's asking the council. You've heard it now. What do you think? What do you think they're going to say? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. This was not a hung jury. It was unanimous. He was condemned. He was judged worthy of punishment. He was deserving of death. He was guilty. Leviticus 24, 16. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. That was their basis. 
All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Now what was it that specifically, again, caused him to be sentenced to death? Was it claimed to be Messiah or was his, his claim to be God? The Son of God, which is the same as saying, I am God. And the answer is because he claimed to be God. There were many false messiahs in Jesus' day. But he crossed the line when he said, I'm the Son of God. One writer put it this way. In in the Greek society, to blaspheme was to use abusive words to destroy another person's reputation. In Judaism, the object of such blasphemy was always God. The penalty of such a sin was death, as we just read. To commit blasphemy is to speak abusively of God, to discredit his word, or to diminish his majesty. Jesus was accused of blasphemy, and this charge called for his death. And so the chain reaction continues after this. You know, he says he's deserving of death. They've all voted. Then in verse 65, then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and say to him, prophesy. Give us some divine revelation from God. Those were council members. These were the people, you know, again, remember this high council that was supposed to protect the innocent was now actually taking physical blows against Jesus. They spit on him, humiliating in any culture in any day, showing rejection and anger, utter contempt. And of course, they blindfolded him. He was unable, you can imagine, unable to soften the blows, the punches and the smacks and the slaps that were coming on his face. He couldn't tighten his muscles up and see it coming and and cover his, he couldn't do that. And they beat him, meaning to buffet, to strike with a fist. And then the officers joined in. The guards, and they, they struck him now with the palms of their hands, a painful slap. Slapping him, you know, to, on the face. One writer put it this way. He said, everything that happened that night was a miscarriage of justice. The wicked man would falsely condemn the perfect son of God, made it the ultimate injustice. In clear violation of Mosaic law, Jesus' trial took place in private, at night, away from the temple, and just hours before the Passover began. His enemies brought charges without credible witnesses, gave no opportunity for proper defense, pronounced an illegitimate verdict, and sought immediate execution the same day. From the arraignment to the interrogation to the testimonies to the sentencing, nothing about the proceedings was legal or just, writes John MacArthur. And you sit there and, you know, uh, the thing you have to keep in mind, many of you know this, that this was not even the slight bit meaningless. This, this tragedy was not a meaningless tragedy. Even his enemies were evil and meant his punishment to be that way. Um, John 5.22, it says, and though they might judge him unjustly, he would judge them eternally with perfect justice. He says it's all going to turn around eventually. 
And God used this meaningless tragedy in the minds of you know, many as a meaningless tragedy. Some people criticize our faith to say, why would you kill your own God if he is God? God used it for all and for the good of all. If Jesus had not have suffered and died on our behalf, there would be no hope for anybody. No hope of eternal life. Now the scene shifts back to Peter in, in verses 66 and 72. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. He was warming himself by the fire. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it was easy to recognize Peter in the firelight. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. This was the first denial. And then he got up and he walked over to the porch and the rooster crowed. In verse 69, and the servant girl saw him again. And all the servants were aware and excited about the trial. You, you know, here they are, they're sitting. They know that this trial's going on inside, and they're sitting outside in the courtyard. So they're having these conversations, and they're choosing sides between. They're saying, you know, was Jesus really, did he really do these things? Was he the bad guy that they say he is? It would be just like any one of us if we were bystanders. And the only ones that were bystanders were the actual servants, and Peter, and John. And so here's Peter, known to be a follower of the Lord, standing right before them. And then they began to say, this is one of them. Again, accusing Peter is one of those ones that is, you know, was with Jesus. But he denied it again. He had a second denial in verse 70. And it says, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And with your speech, it shows it. Just, just like some of you might recognize that... Uh, my accent, and I'm not from around here. <laughs> he was from Galilee, and they could tell. He was from up north. And then Peter, in verse 71, he began to curse and swear. Now, this is not what you and I would consider perhaps as a cuss words, this cursing and swearing that, that Peter was doing. Now, what he was doing was saying, it was like he was bringing divine curses on his own head. He was so betraying, he was so uh, you know, bold-faced lying about his affiliation with Jesus that he was willing to say something like, may God strike me dead, if I'm lying, I'm dying. That, that's literally what he would want to say. He says, I don't know this man of who you speak. So Peter literally spoke an oath of denial against the Lord. And verse 72, a second time the rooster crowed. Now, here's the reminder. Just like an alarm clock. Okay, some people say pastors are like alarm clocks, right? We remind you of things that you might have purposely forgotten. <laughs> you forgot to set that item, right? <laughs> but like an alarm clock interrupting a bad dream. In Luke 22, 61, you know, apparently even the Lord made eye contact with Jesus. It says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter called to mind, as we read in our text, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. Just a few short hours ago, Peter was vehemently declaring his dedication for Jesus. 
Mark 14.31. says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the apostles there at the time, before they scattered, said the same thing. And notice it says, and when, when Peter, when he thought about it, he wept. His memory was now flooded with Jesus' words and the prediction of what Peter had just done. And as a result, Peter was humiliated by his shame and his guilt. Matthew and Luke record that he went out and he wept bitterly. One writer said this, Though Peter sinned greatly, his true character is not seen in his denials, but in his repentance, beginning with heartfelt sorrow. You know, that's where it all comes down for you and I. When we have been guilty, when we have been found guilty, whether by our conscience or by an actual true accusation, being confronted and being held accountable for the things we do, It's not by the thing that you've done, okay? It's not the, the, the crime that you've committed, whatever it is. It's because of your repentance that shows your character. The writer goes on, he says, but Peter's failures are not the end of his story. Evidence of his genuine, uh, the genuineness of Peter's faith can be seen almost immediately. It was Peter and John who raced to the empty tomb. Peter was one of the first to see the risen Christ. He was with the disciples when they gathered in the upper room. He went to Galilee to wait for the Lord as instructed. And he was there in Galilee when Peter was restored to ministry fully. And you remember John 21, 15, 17, I don't have that slide. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And when they finished breakfast, remember they had breakfast on the beach with Jesus. They came ashore and there he was. And he said to Simon Peter, Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Then tend my lands, lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, John of man, do you, son of man, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. So Peter was fully restored for this terrible uh, you know, sin that he'd committed. And it kind of comes back when we start saying, Well, you know, that's a great story. But I, I've got to ask you and I, I've got to ask myself, Would we deny our Lord? Under the right circumstances, would we deny him and, and even take an oath of denial before others? You know, if we're honest with ourselves before the Lord, you and I are still having to deal with our human nature each and every day. It's a fact. Recall earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus urged his disciples to keep watch and pray. He said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Last week, Bob taught from the Lord's Prayer about temptation. And the need to pray to be delivered from temptation. 
But you know, we're not always victorious over temptation, are we? We stumble along the way in our sin. And sometimes ignore the warnings and the suffering and suffer the consequences. We ignore the warnings. How often have you promised you wouldn't commit that sin again? The one that continues to haunt your conscience and tempt your flesh. While you may not deny Christ openly, you deny him by your repeated sin. So as we get ready to take communion together, you and I should take advantage of what we have. Take advantage of the opportunity the Lord has presented each and every one of us today. That is to examine our hearts before the Lord and ask Him once again to let us leave those memories of past failures at His feet. Maybe they're very recent failures. Maybe just the other day. You've already spoken with the Lord. You've already done business. You've already sought forgiveness for the person that you may have offended. But it's still there in your mind. As it is mine. Only Jesus can cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So we need to remember that He died so that we could truly live. So just as Jesus would restore Peter in a few days after His resurrection, He will not leave us in our sorrow and our misery because He desires to lead us past our failure and refocus on the future He has for each of us. We can go ahead, if we would, lower the lights. We're going to get ready to take communion. As I pray, Lord, we thank You for Your Word today. And we ask, Lord, that You go before us now. Lord, we want to take the time that's necessary to really focus in on where we are with You. And if, if any one of us is not ready to take communion because we've still got bitterness in our heart or we're perhaps some of us among uh, here today are, are not even believers in Jesus Christ, they don't share the faith in Jesus Christ, then, you know, Lord, speak to our hearts. We use the power of the Holy Spirit to control us <laughs> and speak to our hearts, whether it's appropriate or not that we should even take communion today unless we have decided to bring our cares before you, unless we have decided to lay them down at your feet, to repent and to seek forgiveness. Lord, may that be our heart this morning and that we could encourage one another not to please one another, but to please you, Lord, and to take advantage of the wonderful grace, the wonderful grace that you've set before us in these communion elements as we're reminded of the great sacrifice that only you could pay on our behalf. So go before us now as we prepare to take communion. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.